Oh, they took our life in with their friends, but they could not buy our soul. Joe Hill died, Jacob R. Ford, Pamela Wally lay down dead. If a person speaks out critically here, they could get loaded down with lead. How long can the majority wait for their story to unfold? Oh, they took their life and liberty friends, but they could not buy their soul. You're with 3CR Radio this morning on 855am or maybe you're listening on the web somewhere at 3cr.org.au or on digital radio at 3CR Digital. Stay with us. 3CR is broadcasting from the stolen land of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation, true owners and custodians of the land from which we broadcast, and we pay our respects to elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge that sovereignty has not been ceded. I'm Judith Peppard, hosting the show today. I'm speaking with Ramona Vigiarasa, the senior lecturer at the University of Technology Sydney Law School, and the editor of Women's Rights, Law and Gender Equality, Making the Law Work for Women. Launched just a few weeks ago, on July 29th. When I caught up with Ramona, I wanted to find out what brought her to her work on women and the law. I've had a long interest in in women's rights advocacy, and I was really privileged to spend about a decade before joining the University of Technology Sydney Working in civil society, I've worked in non-governmental organisations in New York, but also the International Organisation for Migration in Vietnam and Ukraine, and I headed the women's rights team at ActionAid International for six years. I think that decade of experience really enabled me to meet with very diverse women who talked to me about their experiences with the law. Many of those women shared with me how the law would often fail them. They were excluded from the protections the law was meant to give them, and they often weren't seeing their rights protected in legislation. So, for example, I met with women who were victims of domestic violence in Brazil, whose partners were drug laws, and they couldn't turn to the law or law enforcement for protection. I met with women in the floating village of Cambodia who would speak about how often the hospitals they they wanted to visit were unregulated. Only two doctors served thousands of people. And at the same time, I've had the privilege of seeing how relevant this question of gender inequality and the law's role in either prohibiting discrimination or reinforcing it is as relevant to those countries as it is in Australia. And that really motivated me to revisit this question of the law and ask myself and in my research, can the law work more effectively to advance women's rights? You're the editor of International Women's Rights Law and Gender Equality, Making the Law Work for Women. How did the book come about? The book is the result of a symposium that took place last August called Making the Law Work for Women. That symposium was enabled by support from the Academy of the Social Sciences of Australia, who support researchers to have workshops on nationally important conversations like gender equality. 
that we could bring together experts from around the world who brought experience and skills on a range of different areas of law. So we had in the room, so to speak, because it was a, a virtual discussion, experts on gender-based violence, on the environment, on taxation, on corruption, all of whom were bringing a gender perspective to different areas of law and asking within their own areas of law the question, is the law working as effectively as it can to advance women's rights? That symposium was held in August 2020, and the book is now available. You've all worked very hard, you as editor and also the contributors. Did you feel there was a sense of urgency about getting this book out? This book was being drafted in the post-Me Too evolution. Activists and scholars in an Australian context had simply had enough of the lack of accountability in government, in businesses. In that sense, this book is an urgent one. But I must say, as someone who's worked on these issues for a long time, I think many women around the world would say that the law is not as effective as we had hoped, especially after calls in the 1990s for law reform. Yes, and a number of authors in the book, and you yourself, refer to the International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, or CEDAW, which entered into force in 1981. So I think that bears out what you've just said. It's also interesting that a lot of writers refer back to CEDAW. So I'm wondering, why is that convention so important? To me, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women is a real treasure, the forgotten treasure in the human rights landscape. I just published an article in the Harvard Human Rights Journal, which is called Quantifying CEDAW, but at one point I was going to call that indefensive CEDAW, because there are mixed views on the relevance and utility of the convention. You could almost say the academy is divided. So there are some people like myself who see a lot of value. And there are others who over its almost 40-year history question how much of a difference it's made in advancing the rights of women around the world. What's interesting about this convention is almost every country has signed up to it, minus a very, very small number, which means governments around the world have committed to putting into place the requirements that are set out in that convention. And yet for a whole host of reasons, you could easily identify countries where progress is slow and there's a lack of accountability for the commitments made in that convention. So there is a mixed sense of the value of the convention. I think it's important to acknowledge that. However, to me, the convention is very comprehensive. It's a living instrument because the committee members issue new statements on a regular basis. And it gives women activists and male activists in countries who are fighting for these rights something to cling to something to hold on to when they're holding their governments to account. One more point I would make about CEDAW that makes it so useful is it offers a common benchmark across all countries. Women's rights is not about trying to perform better than your neighbouring country. We often joke in Australia about competition with New Zealand and New Zealand ranks much higher than Australia in a lot of the gender indices when it comes to women's rights. But the convention is about saying there's an ultimate standard and regardless of which country you're from, we need to obtain that standard for women. So the same standards apply to countries like Iceland as they do the Philippines or Indonesia, and it gives activists and people pushing for law reform a high-level standard to call governments to account. And I think that's where the convention's real value lies. And if you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Verona Vigiarasa about the book she edited entitled Women's Rights Law and Gender Equality, Making the Law a Work for Women, which was launched last month. And as Ramona points out, 
There are varying views about CEDAW, the International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, but it also has its practical side. Ramona has applied it in the development of the Gender Legislative Index, or GLI. It's the basis of the Gender Legislative Index, which is an index I created at the University of Technology, Sydney, almost two years ago now. And the index uses the standards in CEDAW to create a set of criteria against which we can evaluate the gender responsiveness of legislation. You can take a piece of law, you evaluate it against the standards set out in the convention, and you can say whether that law is good or ineffective for women. And there's a whole lot of scales set out in the Gender Legislative Index with terms like gender responsive laws or gender regressive, whether the law meets international standards or shows a complete disregard for standards. In many respects, it's a tool that turns the convention, now four decades old, into something practical to create, to accelerate or catalyze accountability. I think one of the reasons why people have hesitated to see CEDAW's value is over the years, there's been many ways in which governments have been able to escape from accountability. And the Gender Legislative Index offers a tool to make much more visible when governments are delivering on the legal and policy reforms that they're supposed to. And you've trialled it, I think. I don't know if trialled is the right word, but you've certainly used it in a number of countries. That's correct. So the initial pilot of the Gender Legislative Index was in the Philippines, Indonesia and Sri Lanka. One of the reasons was I wanted to apply the tool to assess the legislative footprint of women presidents in those countries, which is the current book that I'm working on. I decided then to include a country in the global north because I think it would be wrong to suggest only countries in the south are struggling with women's rights. And so I've added a range of laws into the Gender Legislative Index from Australia. So we've now tested the index from four countries. I think that's really exciting. And uh, is there somewhere that it's been published, the results of applying the index? The results have been um, published in a few different places, but the index itself is a public resource. You can go and visit it in your own time at genderlawindex.org. All of the benchmarks used to assess legislation are available, and each law that's been evaluated is also available, including the evaluations, and the reports of the individual human evaluators is also available. What's interesting about the Gender Legislative Index is that it uses machine learning to come up with an overall score for the law, and that's probably one of its greatest innovations. To me, the ideal would be to enable other scholars and other lawyers to use these tools to evaluate laws across a range of areas in other countries. And so being an open source tool was an important aspect of its design. And the GLI uses a scale from gender regressive, gender neutral, gender blind and gender responsive. So I'm wondering if you could just give some examples of what a gender regressive law would be. Thanks, Judith. I mean, to me, the the most obvious gender regressive law would be a law that criminalises abortion. So a reproductive health care service that women need that is denied to women. And there's a great chapter in international women's rights law and gender equality, abortion law reform in Kenya, Rwanda, Nepal, and India. What's interesting about the scale, however, is that we can quickly slip into a gender regressive law, even for well-intended laws. So, for example, in Sri Lanka, there's a law on gender-based violence that's meant to address domestic violence in the home. That law creates a provision that allows a judge to force a couple to undergo mediation, even in instances where there's been accusations of domestic violence. Now, that is a violation of international women's rights standards. International women's rights law makes very clear 
that a woman should not be forced into mediation where she's accusing a partner or a former partner of domestic violence. And so you have a law that's very well intended to be gender responsive, but with a very gender regressive provision embedded inside it. The other issue that's come up in the book is also who's interpreting the law? Who does the interpretation? How does the application work? Absolutely. And, and implementation is really key. And I think we can't ignore what a struggle activists in this space have made to call for stronger implementation of laws. When they've done this, what's key to implementation is to make sure that the laws are backed by finance. You need resources to implement a law and you need monitoring. And to monitor effectively, we need data collection on how different groups of people, whether that's men or women or people who don't identify as either, whether it's people who are migrants from a non-English speaking background, Whatever one's identity may be, we need data to understand how different people are experiencing the law to really monitor the law's effectiveness. I think what's really key still is getting the law right in the first place. That makes absolute sense. One of the things that you talk about in the book is intersectionality, the diversity of women, and their experience of the law varies. Maybe to start, what do you mean by intersectionality? Intersectionality for me with the term coined quite a few decades ago, that acknowledges that people don't have one single identity. I am neither a woman nor a woman of colour. I am a first-generation Australian whose parents were born in Malaysia with uh, grandparents from Sri Lanka. I have a lot of diversity in my identity. And those multiple and intersecting identities will shape our lives, it shapes how we experience our lives, and it certainly shapes how we experience the law. So the call in this book is to acknowledge that even though it's about making the law work for women. Women are a group with incredible diversity and you can take two women and they will experience a law differently depending on all of those factors. And the list of factors or identities goes on. It's not just about race or ethnicity, it's about ability, it's about age, it's about class and and so on. Ramona Fijirasa, editor of Women's Rights Law and Gender Equality. Making the Law Work for Women, which was published in July this year. And more on the book right after these messages. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our right because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio 855am and streaming live at 3cr.org.au Census night was Tuesday the 10th of August. Make sure you complete your census. For help, visit census.abs.gov.au or call 1800 Authorised by the Australian Bureau of Statistics, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. Victoria, to keep us safe, we know what to do. There are only five reasons to leave home. Shopping for food and supplies that you need. Exercise, both within five kilometres of your home or as close to home as possible care and caregiving, authorised work or education if you can't do it from home, getting vaccinated as soon as you're eligible. Masks are mandatory indoors and outdoors, and if you have any symptoms, get tested. For the latest updates, go to coronavirus.vic.gov.au 
Authorised by the Victorian Government Melbourne, a 3CR supporter. We're on 3CR and I'm speaking with Ramona Vigi Arasa, a senior lecturer at the University of Technology Sydney Law School and editor of Women's Rights Law and Gender Equality, Making the Law Work for Women. Next, Ramona looks at two specific chapters in the book, one by Heather Nancaro. There's a fantastic chapter by Heather Nancaro, who's just retired from her position as CEO of ANROSE, which is a research institute doing incredible work on domestic violence. And Heather's research really shows how Indigenous women have a very particular experience of law and law enforcement when it comes to domestic violence. And we're finding that women from the Indigenous communities are often labelled as perpetrators of domestic violence and not the victims by weak implementation, lack of training of police officers and a general negative experience or historically of interacting with law and law enforcement. I love the chapter in the book on environmental regulation by Rowena Maguire because she actually really centres her entire study around the scholarship of Indigenous women. And she shows us two things. We often talk about intersectional identity as a negative experience, that women experience the law a particular way or harmed a particular way because of their identity. Rowena Maguire's chapter on environmental regulation reminds us the value of understanding people's identities and how that can expand the conversation and the knowledge around the room. And she draws on all this beautiful scholarship by Indigenous women such as Irene Watson and Professor Marcia Langton and Professor Morton Robinson who show us how when it comes to the environment we want to centre our conversation around caring for country, respect for the land and not about environment domination. You can understand intersectionality two ways, both the way it harms us but also the value that those different identities bring to the conversation and expanding knowledges. Ramona Vichy Arasa. And before we finished our conversation, I asked Ramona about the provocation by U.S. black activist and poet Audre Lorde. Lorde famously says, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us temporarily to beat him at his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. Now, it could be argued that international women's rights law and gender equality is using the master's tools, the law, to make change for women. So I asked Ramona, what's the argument for doing this? I would absolutely say that the book does use the master's tools. We had such a tremendous debate during the Making the Law Work for Women Symposium precisely about Audre Lorde's work because we were grappling with decades of activism challenging the legal system and yet full knowledge that we aren't likely to burn down the master's house in a hurry. The legal system is a very ingrained part of societies, and not just in countries like Australia, but all around the world. They're a key institution of most countries. So the question to ask ourselves is, do we fight from the outside or do you work with the system you have to improve it? I think the jury is still out, but certainly as editor of this book, I believe in working with the legal system, and I see a lot of value in the legal system in bringing about change. Law is a very powerful tool in shaping people's behaviours and practices and shifting cultural norms and practices. Historically, we've seen a change in how communities respond to practices like polygamy, or even the sending of girls to school alongside boys just because the law requires it. And in recent times in a country like Australia, we've seen greater acknowledgement 
of the equality deserved to be experienced by same-sex couples because of the Marriage Equality Act. Social change brings about law reform. Law reform brings about social change. But the law's value must be recognised in that process. And so the book really is about saying, with the legal system that we have at hand, how do we make it work better? Where are the opportunities for law enforcement? Who do we need to persuade? And what are the best arguments to persuade them? So yes, it very knowingly uses the master's tools, but hopefully makes a case for how we can make those master's tools work much more effectively than they have until now. And you say in the book that you have not taken an abstentionist approach. What is that? I suppose it's like walking away and giving up on the system. There's an interesting quote in the in the book and in another chapter that's coming out elsewhere where we navigate through this question of when do you abstain from the system and walk away and when do you engage? And I think there are moments when you want to be an activist with a placard outside the courtroom and there are other moments when you want to get inside the courtroom and fight for someone's legal rights. And the same can be said around law reform and legislation. There are moments when you want to be really exploring the opportunities that political systems create for you to debate, draft legislation, and to give your view as a community member or as a legislator or a scholar or whatever it may be. And there are other times when you take the legal system as it is and you you accept it for what it is and find the entry points, the ways in which you can better support those marginalised from the law. And so I suppose the answer there is to say we engage rather than walk away. Ramona Vigiarasa. And even though the book was only published a month ago, I asked Ramona if she had any indication of how it had been received. And the launch was tremendous. We had over 700 participants registered and we had over 300 come to the launch itself. We received nothing but accolades. So it was a, it was a terrific launch and a terrific conversation. So hopefully from here, it'll be a matter of getting their hands on the book and scholars and, and hopefully non-scholars reaching out and engaging with the conversations that we're trying to instigate as a result of the book's chapters and arguments. And thank you so much for making time to speak with us on Communication Mixdown here on 3CR. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me, Judith. It's been a great conversation. Ramona Vici Arasa, a senior lecturer at the University of Technology, Sydney Law School, and editor of Women's Rights Law and Gender Equality, Making the Law Work for Women which was launched last month on July 29th. And I'll put links to the book and also to the Gender Legislative Index developed by Ramona on the Communication Mixdown website. Before I leave, I want to acknowledge the women of Afghanistan and what the return of the Taliban means for their rights. All of us will be listening for news about what's happening on the ground in Afghanistan and writing to our politicians, doing whatever we can to offer support. Stay tuned to 3CR, and I'm going to finish with Yadu, a beautiful song by Gugura Greek woman, Lady Lash, who hails all the way from Sedona in South Australia, now based in Melbourne. Oh
Was Yadu by Lady Lash. What a great track to start your Monday morning. Before that, you heard a discussion on women and the law and a new book called International Women's Rights Law and Gender Equality, Making the Law Work for Women, with the editor Romana Vigirazar. Thanks to Judith, Pe- Judith Peppard for that interview. You can catch Judith and the team on Communication Mixdown, which airs on Mondays from 6 p.m., here on 3CR, or you can check out the website, www.3cr.org.au forward slash communication mixdown. And good morning, everyone. I hope you're all faring well in lockdown. This is Jacob on 3CR Breakfast, um, and the time is 7.27. Now, up next, we've got quite an interesting piece. Um, so as we know, we did our national census a few weeks ago. But did you know sea slugs also have their very own census? Um, so this is a, a piece from uh, Radio Blue with James Whitmore, who shares an update on the Melbourne sea slug census from Nicole Mertens of the Victoria National Parks Association. Divers were able to squeeze in a winter survey between lockdowns in July. 
and you might be surprised to hear how many types of sea slugs live in the waters close to Melbourne. And you're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am. My name's James Whitmore. Would you be jumping out in the water at this time of year? I'm not sure I would be. But that's exactly what a bunch of keen divers did recently as part of the Melbourne Sea Slug Census. Melbourne is home to an amazing number of sea slug species. To find out more, I spoke to Nicole Mertens from the Victorian National Parks Association. All right, Nicole, we've talked about the sea slug census here on Out of the Blue a bit before, but can you just remind us about sea slugs? What are we talking about here? So when we're talking about sea slugs, we're um, talking about basically shellless or mostly shellless marine mollusks. Um, they are snails, um, but they have mostly yellow shells. And I think uh, most people would probably be thinking of the colourful and lovable nudie branks when we say sea slugs. And they are, in fact, a, a branch of sea slugs, I suppose. Do you have a favourite sea slug? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I have a couple. Okay, go on. <laughs> I think when you um, spend as much time as I do looking at different <laughs> different photos of all the different sea slugs, you have a couple. Um, so I think one of my favourite true nudie branks is... Um, Polythera jandrichia, um, which, as the name suggests, um, found near Jandruk, here in Victoria. Um, it's this tiny little sort of pinkish-purple nudibranch um, with these really big kind of antenna-like rhinophores on its head that makes it look like a bit of a cartoon bunny. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think that's just a super cute little one. Um, and my my actual favourite sea slugs are not nudibranchs at all. They're the group called the sacoglossums or the sap-sucking sea slugs, mm. um, just because I think they're, they're pretty cool. They have this um, really interesting way of feeding. Mm-hmm. So that when they um, when they come up to a bit of algae which they might be uh, interested in feeding on, they have this really sharp tongue-like um, thing in their mouth called a radula, and they kind of slit open the algal cells and they suck all the contents out. Um, and some of these sap-sucking sea slugs can actually hold on to the chloroplasts, so the photosynthesizing compounds inside the algae, and they can store them in their own bodies, and they can actually use it and be solar-powered for a time. Wow. So plant vampire sea slugs. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and how, <laughs> how, how, how small are we talking? How tiny are we talking? Um, so it does depend on the species. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get some really big ones in Victoria, you can get ones that are sort of the size of a football, which are pretty noticeable. You could even see them from, say, like the top of a pier. Um, but some of the sacroglossums in particular are really tiny, and we're talking like a couple of millimetres, so no wow. more than sort of like your, your pinky fingernail. Mm. And so this survey, I think I read, has been running since 2013? Um, yeah, so we are collaborating with the Sea Slug Census uh, project founders from Southern Cross University in New South Wales, um, and they have been going for yeah a fair while now. Um, for the Melbourne Sea Slug Census, our first census was in April in 2018. And why are you out counting sea slugs? <laughs> um, well, besides the fact that they are very cool and mm. we're very interested in <laughs> knowing more about them. Um, they are what's considered to be a bit of a bioindicator species. So because most of the sea slugs have like a really um, short lifespan, usually less than 12 months, 
and a lot of them are really specific in what they'll eat, um, they can be quite rapidly affected by changes in the environment. And so that's one thing that the people in New South Wales have been noticing is that there's actually um, some evidence that quite a few species are kind of moving their ranges like further southward and that might be in response to climate change. Mm. So we're really interested to see whether we can start picking up um, similar kinds of trends here. And also there are just so many species, like I was looking at some of the previous reports. It's just astonishing. Yeah, it's true. So I think um, we're up to about 200 species we recorded in the last couple of years in Victoria. Um, Victoria's got about 400 or maybe even more known species of sea slugs, so we've got a little way to go. <laughs> mm. yeah, but, yeah, there are, there are quite a few. And luckily you were able to squeeze in a survey between recent lockdowns. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so we are also interested in seeing whether there's any difference in, I suppose, um, when and where we're seeing different types of sea slugs um, throughout the year, so whether there's any seasonal differences in, like, abundance and occurrence. Um, and we are sort of basing that off, again, the kinds of trends that we're starting to see out in New South Wales, which has been going for a bit longer. Um, so I did try to get people out um, in June last year, Obviously, lockdown thwarted us then, hmm. um, and we were thinking that we'd probably have to cancel it again, but we were quite lucky in that we had a bit of a break in restrictions, and people were able to, to go out over the weekend and, and jump in at their favourite sites. And, um, yeah, we're now just in the process of getting all of the photos that everyone sent in um, identified and confirmed with our expert at the museum, uh, Bob Byrne and hopefully get a report out to people pretty soon. Yeah, and I know you haven't got any final results. Can you tell us a bit about what you found? Like, uh, I saw that um, earlier this year in March you found a record-breaking number of sea slugs. Did you find uh, uh, what sort of numbers of species were you finding this time? Yeah, so comparatively to March, um, the numbers are a little bit down. We did only end up getting photos from about 10 people this time, um, which is significantly less than in March, um, and partly probably because of the, the weather and also, you know, hang-ons from restrictions and, and everything. But um, we did still get 160 photos sent in, um, and my rough sort of, back of the notepad estimations on species, we're looking at um, still about 70 species, wow. which is more than twice as much as what we um, got the first time we ran a June census um, way back in 2019 now. Wow. Do you, do you have any idea of what's going on? Are there, are there actually more species of sea slugs or are people getting better at finding them? I think it's uh, probably safe to say that people <laughs> are getting a little bit better getting their eye in. Mm. Um, I can say um, that I was talking to Bob Byrne on the phone today because I did have to mail him <laughs> our um, entries for July to have a look over, and he did mention that there are a couple of very interesting species in the list that I sent him, and we're sort of fingers crossed that one or two of them are actually um, first-time entries for Victoria. So they might not be new species, but they're certainly um, yeah, new occurrences for Victoria. Mm. And uh, what's involved in a sea slug census? What happens if you sign up? So you don't have to sign up. You don't have to register. Um, all we're asking is that when we're uh, announcing a census, the next one's going to be um, in October between the 22nd and the 25th, or 
yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> um, if you happen to be out on the coast anywhere along Victoria during that time and you do or you're in the water and you do come across a sea slug, just take a photo of it, send it in to us and we'll do the rest. Um, where can people go to find more information? Okay, so if you want to find more information on uh, the project and uh, I guess learn a little bit more about how to send in your photos, you can jump onto our website at www.vnpa.org.au back, what is it, slash c-slug. That was Nicole Mertens from the Victorian National Parks Association talking about the Melbourne Sea Slug Census. Get involved if you can. That was James Whitmore from Out of the Blue speaking with Nicole Mertens about the Sea Slug Census. If you liked that, tune into Out of the Blue Sundays from 11.30am here on 3CR. You can also check them out on the website 3cr.org.au forward slash Radio Blue. Our next segment features Fiona McLeod, who is a senior counsel at the Independent Bar in Australia. She spoke to Annie from Solidarity Breakfast about her new book, Easy Lies and Influence, which outlines the threats to our democracy posed by the catalogue of dodgy practices exhibited by the present federal government, despite the checks and balances that are present to challenge them. It is part of Monash University Publishing's In the National Interest series. Yes, and you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and we're going to be speaking now with Fiona McLeod, and she's the chair of the Accountability Roundtable. It's a body dedicated to keeping governments in Australia open, honest and accountable, and I bet you they're doing uh, working overtime, <laughs> and a former chair of Transparency International Australia. Now, she's just published through... Uh, Monash University Publishing uh, as part of their In the National Interest series. Not a long tome, about uh, 100 pages, um, a, a piece called Easy Lies and Influence. Hello, Fiona, how are you? Good morning, Eddie. Yeah, um, oh, fascinating read, absolutely. I've been fuming for, ever, for quite a long time about the... Uh, a level of uh, rising corruption that's obviously uh, emanating from our federal government and our various uh, uh, instruments. Uh, but we've got plenty of uh, instruments that should be checks and balances that should be in, in play. Uh, but let's go first to your basic contention that... Uh, Everything around our government is related to the Thomas Hobbes social contract. Do you want to talk a little bit about that first? Well, sure. Um, Listeners may know that Thomas Hobbes' basic premise in terms of the social contract is that we give up our individual liberties and agree to be governed uh, by voting for them in return for the promise that they will use those powers for good instead of evil. And, yeah. yeah, so what that means is that um, when you take office, a public office, such as being an elected parliamentarian, you won't use your powers to pursue personal gain, to reward your mates, to line your own pockets, to give yourself advantage, business opportunities, uh, you know, uh, um, bending the laws to suit yourself. That. This is a notion we call public trust, and it arises directly from that social contract. And unfortunately, 
and we're all getting mad about this, as you said. We're not seeing that, and it's boiling over into this endless frustration we have that they're just getting away with it. Yeah, yeah, very dangerous stuff. And uh, uh, not to mention that, uh, as you, my note taking from your, I mean, your your piece is so elegantly put together and it's so packed that, you know, you only need 98 pages to tell us the truth. Uh, The Australian Institute has uh, estimated that um, the corruption uh, within our system at the moment is costing $72.3 billion each year, which is 4% of the GDP. It's very expensive. It is, and, it, and it's not just the cost. I mean, $72 billion, how much of the NDIS could we fund for that? How many hospitals and, and getting our aged care system right could we do, use that money for, which is lining people's pockets? But we don't call it out. We don't call it corruption in Australia. We call it soft names like pork barrelling or rorting or, you know, um, th- this notion that somebody expects that they can get into power and look after their mates or themselves. We just turn a blind eye to it. And I think it's because we're so overwhelmed and we're just so fed up with the corruption that we we don't know what to do about it. We turn a blind eye to it in the end because... We're just paralysed. Well, actually, someone said to me once that uh, some people don't listen to 3CR because they don't want to know how bad things are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I, 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 your, your piece says the same thing to me. Oh, well, that's great. So in, in the book, Easy Lives and Influence, I consider the ways our governments have embraced corruption and favoured their own interests ahead of the public interest. So we're talking about Lies, bribes, purchasing influence, rewarding those who contribute to campaign funding with their favourable treatment or advancement or appointment. And this has become standard operating procedure. And I reflect in the book on the way that corruption has become normalised in our country. We, we become used to the notion that our politicians are going to lie to us or not answer questions, just walk away from press conferences without giving us the truth. And the journalists are working this out, and some of them are very good at it, but others, it takes a while to work that out. And we saw that in America too, you know, the great beacon of democracy. Trump lied so often in so many ways on so many things, the journalists couldn't keep up with him. Plus he had, you know, a captive media who were repeating these lies over and over. You know, I won the election. And this fermented civil unrest. He told lies to the mob and um, encouraged them to go and seize power by force. Unthinkable. Well, you 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 you, you actually said that earlier. You said fighting for good uh, rather than evil. Uh, sociopaths. You see, they're sociopathic. Well, well, this is sociopathic behaviour. It's the notion that once you are in power, you're untouchable, and uh, increasingly people are getting away with it. And so the book really calls it out and looks at the sheer number of revelations, the massive scale of rorting of public funds, and then the complete disconnect between each revelation that we hear, sports, rort, car park, walks, hello world, paladin, each revelation, and there being any consequence. And I'm not saying there wasn't rorting in the past, but we had a concept of ministerial responsibility which meant ministers were held to account. Yeah, yeah, but also it's a pattern. It's like the whole coverlet of this government is a rort. 
in a sense. Yeah. I mean, now, that's what it's that's its uh, tenor. Yeah, absolutely. So we're seeing billions of dollars of our funds squandered, but it also has an impact on uh, the fair markets. So say say you and I have a coffee shop next door to each other, and we're both busting our guts to make those coffee shops work and to try and uh, earn ourselves an income. You suddenly score the brand new coffee machine and outdoor furniture because you were a mate of the local politician and you contributed to their campaign so you benefit for some grant. People understand that unfair commercial advantage that applies and is applying in the market. And we, we see how unfair it is and we see how working our guts out and yet the reward goes to the person next door because of who they know or who yeah. they've paid. And, and the accountability is uh, the rot. But before we get to the fact that this is the rot, um, oh, the, the, uh, you're, you've got a comprehensive uh, breakdown of specific uh, um, rorts. We'll call them rorts. Um, but there are a couple of really important things, like the public service is, are being infiltrated by um, Liberal Party toadies, effectively. So uh, political appointments into the public service is actually incredibly important. And the other one, which is uh, the employment of public servants, they're not public servants, by contract to labour by a labour hire, which they no longer have the public service accountability clauses. They're not covered. Yep. Now, I should point out, I'm I'm turning the cannons on the federal government in this book particularly, um, and uh, you might say, well, you're a former Labor candidate, so of course you'd do that. However, this sort of corruption infiltrates all parties at all levels of government. And I saw, I just heard the last piece you were talking about, Clive Palmer. Remember the lies that were told through the, through the election? He's calling out corruption, but mm. at the same time he's spreading misinformation about death taxes and those things, which have picked up during the election campaign. have got no ability to stop those lies being told, and they do sway votes in the end because people don't know who to trust. That's fascinating, isn't it? The Electoral Commission, you point out, has no power to stop people telling lies during an election. It's it's not its job to vet paraphernalia and election material. What what it does is make sure the election is conducted in a free and fair way. But even then, you know, during the election campaign, there were signs being put up that mimicked the Australian Electoral Commission material by Liberals. I mean, terrible. It's absolutely outrageous. That's right. In an election in AEC... Um, livery, as you call it, which looked like the AAC yeah. material, they've got a direction in um, one of the Chinese languages saying, yeah. vote one liberal. And people walk in and they think, oh, I'm being directed by yeah. the AAC to vote liberal. It's just now, outrageous. And that's not even covering the outrage that is uh, uh, donations to... Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. And so what does a donation buy you? A donation buys you a seat on the Prime Minister's COVID Cabinet Committee to direct the way that funds, public funds are spent to ensure that we recover. And, of course, if you put a gas and fuel executive to chair that committee, he's going to recommend gas and fuel projects as the way to spend our way out of out of the economic slump we're in. It's pathetic. So, and the next thing that... Be, I mean, because we're running out of time, mm. uh, um, the... Uh, 
they're not just stealing, but putting national security at risk because they like to present themselves as being, you know, the uh, economic uh, good managers and, uh, uh, you know, where everything's about national security. But the business about the subs is just jaw-dropping. Uh, so people might not remember this issue about the submarines. And you, m- many people will have heard that we are billions of dollars over without rebuilding our submarines. Remember the election promise that was made initially by Tony Abbott to build submarines with a French company in Adelaide. That was There was no proper procurement process to go through that. Billions of dollars of public funds which should have gone through a very tight procurement. Yeah, because there is actually a system. Exactly. Exactly. There are systems and checks and balances, but if they're just being ignored, then there's very little we can do except hold them to account at elections. I mean, it was bad enough that it was supposed to be $20 billion in warfare, but uh, it's now uh, ballooning out to $124 billion. Yes. and if Unbelievable. If you had looked at, if they had done any due diligence on corruption, they would have found extraordinary allegations. About fouls and... Yes, in in relation to the French company, which is tied to the French government, that ultimately secured that contract. So it was a blatant purchase for votes. But I do give some hope in the book about the structures that we need in place and how we can repair this. And one of those things is, of course, the National Integrity Commission that was resisted by the federal government before the end of 2008. Surprise, surprise. But the crossbenchers then, remember, for a period of time had the balance of power and forced the government to commit to one. And we've been waiting nearly three years on the promise that we would have one. But the model the government's now put up is incredibly weak because it essentially protects parliamentarians and their staff from the same sort of scrutiny and the same sort of accountability as apply to law enforcement agencies. Yeah, I know. It's just extraordinary. It's very, it's really weird. And it's also, I mean, you know, the whole idea that it should be, they should be allowed to get away with it. Uh, the, this particular federal government has been using legislative powers to change the rules and the laws. I mean, even down to things like uh, being allowed to detain refugees forever. And, and the secrecy that surrounds that so that we don't know and deliberately don't know all sorts of things we should know in the name of national security. But so, so the Anti-Corruption Commission, which we have to have, or an Integrity Commission that we have to have, has to be a proper model. And beyond uh, establishing that Integrity Commission, there are a raft of measures that we need to restore, resource properly and put in place Because corruption is a risk, as I said, for all politicians at all levels of government. The minute you are a candidate for election to public office, you need money. And so that's a known risk. We know that people will take money to fund their campaign. And how do they ensure they take clean money? We have to have systems around campaign contributions and perhaps even have public funding for contributions so they're not constantly buying favours or being owed favours, or owing favours to those who have contributed to their campaign. Do you know there's mm. not even a code of conduct for members of parliament at the current time? Well, that, that was fairly well exposed by the uh, sexual uh, yes. uh, 
um, attacks on people and the fact that the uh, staff that work at uh, Parliament are so frightened about uh, their job security and so can't step forward. Yes, and so those staff are sackable without without reason, as are now senior public servants. And that just needs to sink in for a minute. The role of the public service is to act fearlessly and frankly to offer advice to government. But if you can be told that you can be sacked without cause, without notice, at a moment's notice, that must be an incredibly chilling effect on the senior public service. It's so, really, it's really disgusting. Actually, it's undermining our entire democracy. Mm. So there's a number of ways we need to fix it, and um, some of them have been committed to by um, Labor. Some of them have been committed to by the Independents, who are really leading the charge on this. So Helen Haynes has a bill up uh, for a National Integrity Commission with a number of protections in place. First, uh, championed by Kathy McGowan. Yeah, Is she, goodness me, was she, was she an independent that was worth getting into Parliament? Helen Haynes, fabulous. Yeah. Fabulous. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you know, Zali Stegall and others have been championing this too, and Rex Patrick has been pursuing freedom of information. Labor have come on board with a, with a strong National Integrity Commission and also a mechanism that will allow ministers who spend in their portfolios against the advice of the department. They've got to declare that. That's part of their policy, which is a, a good step forward. Yeah, yeah, it is a good step forward because, I mean, uh, each time some incredibly awful thing is made apparent, and this is not even going into what must be not apparent, uh, like the Mackenzie woman uh, uh, and, I suppose, uh, Christian Porter, you know, they're outed for something in particular and then they're promoted. <laughs> That's <laughs> it's right. just and bizarre. Exactly. I just want to make this point. Accountability and our trust in government, when they're asking us at this time to abate public health orders, to adapt our lifestyles, to address climate change, to take all sort of steps in our personal lives, that depends on trust. And if we don't trust our governments and the message they're giving us because we think it's all spin then it's very hard to persuade a population to comply with what they need to do for their own benefit, like lock, observe lockdown rules. Yeah, yeah, it's and a, a dis- disintegration of society for the benefit right. we, of a pathetic, pathetic group of people. If we're constantly being told uh, the whitewashing of the truth, if we constantly feel like we're being manipulated, then we're not listening and uh, it can boil over into that public unrest we're seeing. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's um, pretty terrible. I, I, I'm I'm really glad to have read your uh, piece. Uh, as I said to people, it, it's called um, uh, "Easy Lies and Influence," and it's part of the Monash University Publishing uh, series in the National Interest. And I. Uh, uh, you really should go and you should get you should get it and you should read it. Basically. Thanks very much, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for talking to me, Fiona. My pleasure. Good morning. You're on 3CR Breakfast. Um, that was some real interesting discussion about accountability for the government um, and threats to our democracy uh, from Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, speaking to Fiona McLeod about her new book. And if you liked what you heard, you can visit the website 3cr.org 
Au forward slash solidarity breakfast um, and listen in 24-7 to all good pieces of news. Up next, it's time for a song. Um, this one is called Top of the World by Kimbra. Maritime Union of Australia is pleased to announce the Struggles That Made Us poster design prize with a five grand first prize 
the MUA is calling for submissions of a poster or artwork that addresses or is inspired by the struggles, events or historical figures amongst Australian maritime workers. The winning design will be launched on May Day 2022 and featured in a special May Day edition of Overland magazine. So get amongst it, people. Jump online and search for MUA Design Prize to enter. The Maritime Union of Australia is a proud 3CR supporter. Victoria, to keep us safe, we know what to do. There are only five reasons to leave home. Shopping for food and supplies that you need. Exercise, both within five kilometres of your home or as close to home as possible. Care and caregiving. Authorised work or education if you can't do it from home. Getting vaccinated as soon as you're eligible. Masks are mandatory indoors and outdoors. And if you have any symptoms, get tested. For the latest updates, go to coronavirus.vic.gov.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government Melbourne, a 3CR supporter. Good morning. You're on 3CR. That was On Top of the World by Kimbra. Um, Hope everyone is enjoying themselves this morning. Up next, we've got a segment um, where Mark Buckley will give his take on the state of the lucky country and the litany of failures from the coalition government led by Prime Minister Scott Morrison. Australia is a lucky country, run mainly by second-rate people who share its luck. It lives on other people's ideas, and although its ordinary people are adaptable, most of its leaders, in all fields, so lack curiosity about the events that surround them that they are often taken by surprise. That's a direct quote taken from Donald Horne's The Lucky Country. It was published in 1964. Is that still true? The short answer is, of course, yes. Let me count the ways our lucky country is led by second-rate people and some of their signature tunes. Morrison is like a bull in a china shop. In December 2010, the Shadow Cabinet were asked to bring three ideas each to a tactics meeting uh, in order to design attacks on the Gillard government. One of Mr Morrison's ideas was to use an anti-Muslim campaign as he thought it might be effective and popular. He was dissuaded by colleagues who thought it had stepped too far. In February 2011, he objected to the cost of flying grieving relatives to Sydney for the funerals of their loved ones who had died in the Christmas Island boat disaster. After much criticism, he apologised for the timing of the statement, but not the substance. He made the statement on the actual day of the funerals. He repeatedly referred to illegal arrivals and illegal boats when discussing asylum seekers. He was eventually elevated to Immigration Minister in 2013 when Abbott came to power. He takes particular pride in having stopped the boats. He was widely criticised for his refusal to discuss on-water matters because he has a basic disregard toward the public's right to know what the government does on our behalf. In November 2014, the Human Rights Commission, the Australian Human Rights Commission, found that he had violated the rights of children in his care and also of breaching Australia's international obligations. 
Tony Abbott, the Prime Minister at the time, was concerned that the report was politically motivated. No remorse from either of them. In the five years to 2019, more than 95,000 asylum seekers arrived in Australia by aircraft, causing a huge backlog of unsuccessful applicants, all now waiting to be deported. Critics say that many of the victims of people smugglers using the other acceptable gateway, the airport. Many are vulnerable to exploitation and possibly slavery. It is possible that Morrison has thought about this, but I would not bet on it. In 2019, he went to Hawaii while Sydney was on fire because he had promised his kids. He doesn't hold a hose because he's more of an office type of guy. He was busy, he said, and he deserved a holiday, like every other husband and father. This was the beginning of the daggy dad routine. Beers at the footy, visits to Bunnings, silly hats. All part of a campaign to humanise him, to try and remove the big end of town focus of his policies. Tax cuts for the rich, robo-debt for the poor. He has a mortgage like everybody else, except he gets paid over half a million dollars a year. In many ways, the pandemic saved him because he has so little regard for following process that he and his government were in danger of being hounded out of office. It is still amazing how little he expected to be found out, with firstly his sports rorts affair and now this supercharged car park scheme. The car park scheme is worth $660 million. He's like a burglar who thinks no one can see him as he breaks and enters, misusing taxpayers' funds if they, as if they were his own. The vaccine rollout has been a disaster because the daggy leader didn't understand that he'd only done the first part of his job. He was happy to coast on our low infection rates and low number of deaths without any curiosity as to what might come next. Second and third waves have been a part of pandemics since at least 1919 and the Spanish flu, but it was, in his mind, definitely not a race, more of a victory lap. If we were to study Morrison's response to gender issues this year, his calling in of his wife to advise him on an appropriate response to Brittany Higgins was a particular lowlight. He seems to be afraid of these pesky women and their demands for, at the very least, a safe place to work. Again, his tone-deaf support of Christian Porter highlighted his inability to read the signs of change. Ditto for global warming. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change delivered its sixth assessment report this week, and the usual suspects fronted up to gaslight the Australian public. Morrison again stated that he supported the science, and his emissions reduction minister, Angus Taylor, repeated the line that we're on target to meet and beat the Paris target. The climate crisis, for it really is one, was visible to scientists 30 years ago, and yet the Liberals think they can still fob us off with tales of technology, not taxes. In this instance, we are going it alone. We're not even borrowing ideas from overseas. The rest of the world knows climate change is happening, but our leaders have stuck their heads in the sand. Like ostriches, or was that emus? It's very embarrassing and ultimately very dangerous. Clearly, we are led by second-rate politicians who hope that their luck will never end. Thank you for listening. 
That was Mark Buckley there with his take on the state of the lucky country, with a question mark at the end, being led by second-rate politicians. Um, and that was recorded for three CRs left after breakfast program. If you liked that, you can check out the website 3cr.org.au forward slash left after breakfast. Um, and the time is about 8.07. My name's Jacob, and this is 3CR Monday Brekkie. Uh, and now it's time for a song. So this one's called White Noise by Dancing Water. That was White Noise, um, and you are on 3CR Breakfast, joined by Jacob. And up next, we're going to have a bit of a chat about lockdowns. So with Victoria exceeding 200 days in lockdown, as we know, and parts of New South Wales 
overtaking the two-month mark into their current lockdown, it's no surprise that a lot of us are feeling a lot of fatigue around the current state of affairs. And last week, the Premier of New South Wales began announcing the loosening of restrictions, saying that there could be picnics outdoors with up to five people as long as they were vaccinated. Meanwhile, in regional and rural communities across New South Wales, um, there's been outbreaks in towns such as Vulcania. So joining us now to have a bit of a discussion about lockdowns um, and to share some of her work is Sharon Davies, who is the director of the Herb Faith Indonesia Engagement Centre at the Monash University School of Languages, Literatures, Cultures and Linguistics. So Sharon, how are you going? I'm going well, well, pretty fatigued with lockdown, but doing pretty okay. Doing okay. That's, that's good to hear. Um, so, Sharon, how do you think attitudes towards lockdowns have changed between that horrific lockdown in 2020 um, and right now? Well, I think, I mean, everybody across the world is sick of lockdowns, right? They've just been going on, on and on. And it's particularly hard, I think, where there's not a clear um, end in sight. And, and you know, we, for the Melbourne lockdown last year, I was in New Zealand watching um, you know, people go through it in New Zealand and, of course, um, people go through it in Melbourne. And, of course, New Zealand had, had had its own very tough lockdown, which they're back in uh, at the moment. But but my sense is they'll probably come out of it quicker uh, than elsewhere because the lockdown there is incredibly tough and it really restricts movement, it really restricts transmission. And while... When you're in lockdown, it's really much harder. It does end a whole lot quicker, and I think that's what a lot of people are, are looking for, you know, now in Melbourne. Like, when is it going to end? Um, it just does seem to be going on for quite some time. Definitely. When is it going to end? That is certainly the question on, on everyone's lips. Um, and I think that the Delta strain has certainly presented some new challenges um, and I know you've been doing a lot of research into Indonesia as well. How do you think Australia is faring compared to our neighbours in the Asia-Pacific? Well, one of the things, you know, is in Australia, we're in lockdown now. It doesn't feel like any kind of a privilege to be in a lockdown, but it is actually an incredible privilege that we can go into a lockdown because lockdowns save lives. There's absolutely no doubt about that. And if you can save lives when you get through a lockdown, you know, you can all come together again. And so they are well worth doing lockdowns. But some countries just don't have that luxury. So Indonesia, for instance, people will literally starve to death if they can't go out uh, and make money to feed their family. So the choice for people in Indonesia is much starker. It, it really is a choice between feeding their family um, or getting COVID and, and the hospitals are overwhelmed. You can't get into hospitals. Um, by and large, people are just dying at home because they are absolutely over capacity. And we see this in Sydney already. You know, Australia has the best healthcare in the world and it gets overwhelmed by, you know, relatively few cases. So you can imagine here if we didn't have a lockdown, just how many lives we'd be losing. Absolutely. And do you think the the zero cases approach um, is still something that's feasible for Australia? Oh, I think it should be. I think absolutely that should be the goal. And I think, you know, if I was in charge, I would just make the lockdown a really tough one. I would look across the ditch to our neighbours in New Zealand and 
see what they're doing there. There is no takeaway food. There's no takeaway coffee. Um, you know, in Melbourne, we're not supposed to use the play equipment at parks, but on the weekend, there was just hundreds of kids using that. Water fountains are still um, in use. And so I think the goal should absolutely be, you know, getting those case numbers right down. And the way to do that quickly is with an incredibly tough lockdown, not, you know, a more um, um, relaxed lockdown that Australia tends to have compared to somewhere like New Zealand. And I just imagine in a few weeks' time, New Zealand will be coming out of their lockdown and, and potentially, you know, Australia will still be there. For sure. And I certainly agree. I think we're going to be operating under a public health response for quite some time. Um, and there's been some recent discussion, particularly in New South Wales, about the Doherty modelling, um, which gives us some indication of what a, a post-lockdown Australia could look like once we hit the 70% vaccination rate. What do you think are some expectations people should have about opening up after lockdowns? I think for me, I just look at what happens in the UK. So they have incredibly high vaccination rates. It's something like 90% for over 18s or over 16s, really, really high rates of vaccination, but they're still having over 100 deaths a day. And so even at those high vaccination rates, it's not like suddenly we can all live, you know, happily without the threat of death. It is still there. And so I think, you know, that, you know, is it, quite concerning and you know, when we've still got a chance, particularly in Victoria, to get those case numbers right down, um, you know, I would hope that that's what we're aiming for rather than having to, to be in a case like, like the UK is. And, and in the US that we're not hearing very much in the news about there, but, you know, the, the death numbers are still staggering and people elsewhere have seemed to um, be accepting of that, like, you know, only 100 deaths today as if that's something that we should be happy about or comfortable with. For sure. I think the, the statistics that are largely being portrayed in the news um, are moving on beyond case numbers now and more onto hospitalisations and, and vaccine rates. Um, but on that thought, why do you think then are we going for, for 70% vaccination before we open up? Do you think it, it should be more like 90%? Oh, I think I I think so. <laughs> yeah, and I and I think you know in in a lot of those kind of numbers that's looking at either adults over the age of eighteen or over sixteen. But as we know, you know, with the Delta strain, that that even children can be impacted by that. So I'd like to see vaccination rates where they're talking about whole of population or at least you know over twelve. Um, you know, have some sense of, of being a little bit more comfortable with any kind of opening up. For sure. I, I certainly agree. Um, and so we've, we've entered, I think, past the, the 200 day lockdown mark at the moment. Over 6 million vaccines administered in New South Wales last week. If you had any pieces of advice for our viewers on how to cope with the mental strain of the lockdown, what would you say? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Giving some advice that, that hopefully myself, you know, can take as, as well. I mean, I think one of the really disconcerting things is just the uncertainty. I think in previous lockdowns where, you know, a really strict, tough lockdown, you start to see the numbers come down and you can kind of deal with that when you, 
where there's a bit of certainty. Um, and at the moment, it's just so up in the air. We don't have any kind of certainty, and I think that's the really hard, hard thing uh, to deal with. And I guess I take a little bit of solace in some things by thinking if we can all get through this, whatever comes after that, we'll all be thinking back to, well, we got through COVID, you got through COVID, you know, this is nothing compared to that. Um, and also thinking a little bit about when my kids grow up, they'll be, you know, they often ask their grandparents about, um, you know, their, their grandma's in their 90s, so she lived through Second World War, and um, they ask her about, you know, what was that like? And I was like, well, when you get older, little kids will be asking you what was it like to live through COVID. So trying to trying to think long term and think we will get through this. There is light at the end of the tunnel, and we'll be looking back on this as a really tough time, but it'll be you know, making, you know, we get a lot of good character out of these things. And I think more immediately just trying to find little little things that that um, can get us through. So just a simple walk. I went walking this morning and all the blossoms are out and you've got that lovely fragrance. You know, so just taking those small moments to try and centre yourself uh, as well as looking past all of this and, and imagining what life is going to be like when we can travel and see all our loved ones again and see all of our loved ones again so that people aren't missing, you know, that we've done the really hard yards now so that when we come back together, we are all together. It is so important to, to appreciate the little things right now. Um, and just on that note of, of certainty and moving forwards, what changes would you hope to see made um, particularly for essential workers like childcare and aged care workers uh, long-term now that we've sort of endured a, a long pandemic that's really exacerbated some of the, the problems in the system? Yeah, that is such a great question. And my hopeful self would hope that we as a global society see the work of essential workers are very often our most poorly paid um, our most precarious, and yet we call them essential workers, the cleaners and and other people who are doing all of the things that are absolutely essential uh, to our health and well-being. So I would love to see some systemic change, you know, from the government level that recognises uh, that people doing all these jobs deserve, at the very minimum, a living wage, that we're thinking about more issues around equity and equality and that we really question how some of these big companies that are getting job seeker can take all of that money and yet agencies are going after someone who was overpaid $50 for a, a welfare benefit or something. So I'd love to imagine that there's a, a pretty radical restructuring in terms of how we value people and how we compensate them for the essential work they're doing. Unlikely to happen, I think. Mostly we'll go back to our old ways that have really made this COVID situation worse for so many people. But in my hopeful self, I'd love to, to see that we could, we could rethink our priorities in terms of, you know, how we reward essential workers and others. Certainly. Radical restructure, repaying your essential workers, <laughs> um, essential wages, I think is a mm -hmm. good step in, in the right direction. Um, and looking forwards uh, to, to global travel, when do you think the borders will, will open up, particularly now that we're seeing um, a resurgence in cases in, in countries such as Indonesia and, and India? Yeah, I, so much of my work is based in Indonesia and I just wonder when it will be possible um, to get there and just as importantly when it will be possible for people to come here. It might be that 
more quickly Australians can go overseas and, and return than, than other people coming coming in. It just seems a really a long way off. Like 2022 is, you know, there's no chance, I think, of any kind of, of international travel. But hopefully by 2023 there's some kind of systems in place that we can, you know, do what Aussies do and, and go overseas and... Um, and do all of that travel and welcome people to our shores as well. But in the in the short short term, I don't see that happening. Certainly. And and do you think we should be vaccinating our neighbours in the Asia Pacific as well? Well, one of the tragedies, you know, of course, is that you know Scott Morrison's talking about all these extra vaccines that Australia has got, but but these have come from somewhere, and these have come from mm. poor countries that that you know arguably need them much more urgently than does Australia. And so, you know, Australia cannot be in this alone. If we have a completely vaccinated population, it doesn't help us as community players on a global thing. So Indonesia, for instance, you know, can't even count the number of deaths. So any statistics reported from that country are, you know, radically underreported because they just don't have the facilities for testing or for counting um, and so I think Australia needs to do a lot more in terms of, you know, looking out for our neighbours. And I think that's one of the, the heartbreaking things that here in Australia we have this luxury of lockdown, that we can go into a hard lockdown and protect ourselves really quickly. And we're receiving all of these vaccines that, you know, many of them were meant for somewhere else. And yet people are still, you know, pretty selfishly, I think, protesting against that and it's just a slap in the face for countries like Indonesia that don't have that luxury. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely a real wake up call of we are so privileged to be in this lockdown and I think it's worth commending everyone for, for staying safe and for protecting our community. Um and I think that's a great note to finish on and um continue to, to stay home and do your part. Mm-hmm. And Sharon, it's been a real pleasure um, interviewing you. Thanks for coming on the show today. Well, thank, thank you so much. And I might just end with this word, just, you know, on that importance of looking out for each other. There was, I'm an anthropologist, and one of the famous or infamous anthropologists was Margaret Mead, and she once was asked, what is the sign of civilization? And people expected her to say, you know, great cities or great sewage systems or something. And she said it was finding the bones of someone who had had a broken femur, a thigh bone, and it had healed. And it was the healing. You can't heal without the support of your community and your friends and your family. Um, And so this is a lovely way of of really emphasising that what makes humanity great is our ability to look out for and care for each other. So um, I think that's a good good message to try and and, um, go forward with for all of us to to think beyond ourselves and look out for our neighbours and friends and family. That's a, a fantastic message to take away from today's show. Sharon, thanks so much for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. So that was Sharon Davies there from Monash University speaking on the lockdown here in Victoria and what's going on in the rest of the world. We'll be right back after this The Maritime Union of Australia is pleased to announce the Struggles That Made Us poster design prize with a five grand first prize 
the MUA is calling for submissions of a poster or artwork that addresses or is inspired by the struggles, events or historical figures amongst Australian maritime workers. The winning design will be launched on May Day 2022 and featured in a special May Day edition of Overland magazine. So get amongst it, people. Jump online and search for MUA Design Prize to enter. The Maritime Union of Australia is a proud 3CR supporter. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. And that brings us to the end of our show today. Thank you so much for joining us here on 3CR. Look after yourselves. Get your vaccine if you haven't already. Make sure you're checking those exposure sites on the website, coronavirus.vic.gov.au forward slash exposure sites. And take care of yourselves. Tune in now for Women on the Line. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.